My challenge, always, is when we have something that we do regularly, that you think about it. Why do we do that? Why do we do it that way? What is the, what is the purpose? What is the point? Are we doing it the way that God intends us to do it? Or are we only doing it the way that men have done it for ages? Well, that's just the way it is. Well, this morning, I want to take some time and examine the Lord's Supper. This is one of those things, I, I grew up in the church, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And the church that I grew up in observed the Lord's Supper every quarter at a Sunday evening. That was the way it was done. And the deacons would prepare it, and then they would pass it out. That was how it was done. And they would pass first the, the little uh, tray with the, the little bitty wafer, or, you know, things, the, the bread... I, Sawdust, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, they'd pass that, and you'd take a little piece, and then they'd pass the cup, and you'd take a little piece, and then everybody would sit and wait. That's the way it was done. And as a kid, I didn't think much about it, because that's the way it was done. And yet, as I grow up and mature in the Lord, I realize, is that the way that God said to do it, or is that just the way it was done? And so I want to take some time and answer some of those questions. Now, I just ran through a big list of questions, and I'm, I'm guessing that if you pause and think about it, you've got other questions that you could ask. And I would encourage you, think through those. I'm not going to take each of those questions and give the answer to them specifically. What I'm wanting to do, and what I think is the better method, is go through what does the Bible say. And then, when those questions come up, we go back to... Well, what does it say? Does it even address that? And there are some things about the way, like there weren't little bitty plastic cups when Jesus instituted this. So no, the Bible doesn't say you must use little bitty plastic cups. And yet, why do we do that? And is that the right way, the wrong way, or just the way that we do it because it's effective? As we go through this passage, I want to address some of those questions. And just like when I asked the question a little bit ago about why do we sing, I think that our response should be, let's go to what the Bible says. What does Scripture say about observing the Lord's Supper? Well, this morning we're going to spend most of our time in 1 Corinthians, the passage that I had Mark read this morning. We're going to go through that and study it out. And what's going on? What is Paul talking about? Why is he addressing it in this way? All of that type of thing. At the same time, I do want to make sure that we are aware the institution of the Lord's Supper occurs in the Gospels. And it actually happens four different, in, in each of the four Gospels, um, they all record portions, aspects, ideas about it. So in order to fully understand, you've got to look at those as well. And I, I will mention those some as we go through. Now, like I said, we're spending most of our time in 1 Corinthians. So it's important to understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians. Does any, anybody have just a, an impression or an idea about 1 Corinthians? It's a book that basically tells the truth. Okay. All the things they were doing wrong. Okay. The, the church at Corinth, if, if I can put it nicely, was a mess. They had all kinds of problems. They had all kinds of issues going on. And they 
it, this was a church that Paul had established during his missionary journeys, and then he began writing letters back and forth with them. And as you read through, you find out there were multiple letters that happened. Um, the church would ask him questions, or he would hear about things going on, and he would write them a letter and respond to them about it. Um, <clears throat> with the possible exception of two churches listed in the book of Revelation, this is the worst church in the whole Bible. They, they had, and, and by worst, I mean they had the most issues. They, were, they had infighting. They had people sleeping around. They had uh, debates about marriage. They had class distinctions. They were probably a little bit racist, if not racist, at least classist. And, and you know, we're better than you, and you, you're the scum, and, and things of that nature. There were cliques. There was misuse of position. Ultimately, there was a lack of love. That's really the issue going on. They didn't have love. And so as you go through the book of 1 Corinthians, I find it very interesting that it is very, very well known for chapter 13, the love chapter. Why is that? This church was messed up. It had issues. It had problems. And yet, God loved it. And God didn't say, forget it. I'm done. You're worthless and out. He said, all right, Paul, I want you to help them correct. I want you to help them fix this. So you're going to write some, this letter. Some of it's going to be really, really hard and uncomfortable and not nice. But ultimately, the goal, the desire, is not to step on their toes not to get after them, but to help them become who God wanted them to be. So, that love chapter, chapter 13, is in there because that was something that they were missing. And God wanted to f- help them fix that so that they would love one another. Now, obviously, we're, we're taking just one small portion of the book. There's a ton going on. And 1 Corinthians is uh, it's an amazing book to study through. And I'll admit, sometimes when I look at things like this, I get a little bit uncomfortable because I, I start examining myself and I'm like, oh man, I, uh, well, that, that hurt and that hurt. When that happens, what response should we have? What is the appropriate response when conviction occurs? Repent. Turn from it. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, it's not, not always nice. And yet, that's what God was doing because of his great love for this church, because of Paul's great love for this church, he was willing to do that to help them get straightened out, get going the way that it needed to be done. Now, we're going to be picking up right in the middle. Um, we're, we're jumping into chapter 11, which there's a whole lot that has already come before. There's a whole lot that's going to come afterwards. And so just be aware, we're jumping right in the middle of this book. And we're dealing with a section where Paul is addressing how the Corinthians did church. And I'm, I'm putting quotations on it because uh, there were things that they weren't doing right. Just in the way that they came together to have service, things were not being done correctly. 
And Paul is addressing that, and he is helping them understand. And this first section, he's been dealing with some of the, the ways that people were interacting and some of the, the things that were going on about you know, how they were to pray and head coverings. And, and I'll acknowledge, chapter 11 is one of those challenging passages that, that is, is difficult in some of those things. But he starts off, and I want to I go back to the beginning of chapter 11 and read the first couple of verses. He starts off, now I praise you. Sorry, verse 1 is, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. That kind of ties in with the previous section. But he starts off now in, in verse 2, I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. I mentioned that he's going through and he's rebuking them and he's telling them areas where they're wrong, but he also says, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to recognize certain things are good. You're holding on to these traditions, these these things that I taught you, you're hanging on to them. But he's going to continue on and say, "There's, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding. And so I want to correct that. I want to help you understand what you don't understand. And so he spends this first half of the chapter dealing with that. There was something that they, they had wrong. They didn't quite get it, and it was a lack of understanding. And so he addressed that in a, in a gentle way, in a, a dealing with it type of a way. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the tradition just as I delivered them to you. They were at least doing a few things right, and he just needed to hone those. But then... We get to verse 17. There's a little bit of a change of tone. He, he had been addressing an area where they didn't understand it. They were somewhat right, but not quite. We then get to verse 17, and he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. So there's a shift that takes place. And, and we ought to notice that. Remembering that all through 1 Corinthians, Paul is trying to help them address these issues and straighten things out, and sometimes he's very gentle. Hey, I want to praise you for this, because you're doing this part right. But here, you guys got this wrong, and you need to fix it. What is he going to address? In giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When they were coming together, when they were assembling to do church, it wasn't to improve and to better and to be a a good thing. It was causing them to grow worse and worse. Their gathering together was negatively affecting their relationship with Christ. They were not following him. They were not doing that church how God wanted it to be done. And they were actually causing more harm than good when they assembled. So, Obviously, what, what we ought to do then is say, well, just stop assembling. Just, just quit, right? No, not at all. What he, what he says is, let's fix it. I don't, I don't praise you in this. And, and he's going to address the division that's going on. He's going to focus in on that. And Okay, here's what's, what's happening. For in the first place, when you come together, now you'll, you'll notice that that comes up multiple times, so pay attention. This idea of coming together is a key idea through this. When you come together as a church, recall that word means assembly. So when you come together to be together, when you, when you assemble to have the assembly is, is the idea there. When you do that, I hear division exists. Now, 
that in and of itself ought to cue something in our minds. When you come together, you're separated. Well, that doesn't make sense. So what's going on? When you come together as a church, I hear divisions exist. And in part, I believe it. That, that's not what Paul wanted to hear, but that's what he was hearing. That's what he understood. And so he needs to address this. But he does, even in this, verse 19 is going to be just a little bit of, of a positive statement, even though this is a negative thing. For there must be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So, so in this, yes, there, there's this division that's happening. When you come together, there's a division. And that's not good. There is an element that is, is beneficial because when there's a difference, it allows us to examine and understand what is uh, to be approved, what is acceptable or genuine, legitimate is, is the word that I wrote there for that. When they, when they assembled, there were differences. And there's a little bit of benefit from that because then we can evaluate what is right and what is wrong with the goal, obviously, of hanging on to what was right. And so Paul understands this. He recognizes this is what's going on. That's an issue. There is a little bit of positive, but we need to address it and get rid of the negative. And so that's, that's where he's going to go then, starting off in verse 20. We've, we've identified what the issue is. There's division, and that's a problem. How do we deal with that? How do we fix that? How do we address it? What, what does God actually expect? Well, when you come together, there are these, these factions, these heresies is a, is a reasonable translation there as well. This, this, these things that are not meeting up like they ought to. But that allows us to recognize what is true, what is acceptable, and make that openly known. And so, Paul is then going to do that and make known what is correct. Verse 20, therefore, now then, when you meet together, there you see it again, when you come together, that idea, when you come together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, that seems a little bit of a jump to us just reading it through in English. We need to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on. He's saying when you have, when you observe the Lord's Supper, when you take communion, you're not really doing that. You may say that you're taking communion or that you're observing the Lord's Supper, but you're not really. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? We're, we're going to pause there in, in verse 22. What's going on? I, we need to understand a little bit of a historical element of what's happening. One of the things that they would do in this is have what they would call a love feast. And there's a lot of different things that go on with that. Um, you, for, for modern version, you can think of a fellowship dinner. We, we have a tendency to do that. We gather together and, and eat meals together. Uh, again, I was telling stories of when I grew up and how we observed communion. Well, there was, I grew up in a Baptist church, and there was a saying, Baptists meet, Baptists eat. And we had tons of those times in which we would have fellowship dinners or potlucks is what they're often called. We're, we're not big fans of luck because it's blessings from God, so we call it pot blessings. Uh, but whatever you might call it, that idea they would come together and what was supposed to happen is that everyone would bring something. 
And then they would share it and have a, a bounteous feast together. And that was when they came together, they were in unity as the body of Christ, sharing with one another, encouraging one another, having this time of fellowship together. And that was the goal. And yet Paul's saying, that's not what you're doing because when you come together, each one takes his own supper first. So just from the get-go, what was happening is one group would come in and they'd bring their food and they'd huddle together over here and, that, and, and eat their food. And then a group over there would huddle together and eat their food. And there was no togetherness. There was a, there was a faction. There was, there was this difference between them. Another thing, uh, he says, one is hungry, another is drunk. Let's, let's think about the culture a little bit in that time. You had some individuals, bear in mind, typically they would gather after the workday type of an idea. Well, you had some individuals who were independently wealthy. They didn't have to work all day. They had taken care of their business, and now they come together, and they bring their food, and they sit down. They get there, imagine, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They sit down, hey, we're here. Let's go ahead and get started, and they start eating. Well, when, when those who have the regular job, we'll call them middle class, and I'm, I'm stepping over here because this isn't exactly what it's saying, but this is the idea that's going on in modern terms. The middle class, they work, they get off at 5, and they go over to the church then, and they, they've brought their their pail of lunch, and, you know, it, it's not hot and fresh because they took it with them and left it in the car, but, but they got there, and so maybe it's a cold sandwich or whatever, and, and they share that, and, and the group that was there at three o'clock, well, they've already had their firsts, but now they're ready for seconds, and uh, they had a little bit of leftovers, so they share that out as well, and, but then you've got, now, in this time frame, you've got the lower class, the slaves, doulos is the word that's used, you have those who, they, they don't have much. They barely got done working. In that culture, in that time, they would work from sunup to sundown, and then they might even have to serve the meal to their masters, and then, finally, they get to go and join with the church. And they get to worship God together, and they show up, and it's already dark, and, and well, the firsts are all gone. The seconds are mostly gone. They're broke. They barely were able to bring maybe a loaf of bread, not much. And, and oh, well, it, it's already dark. We got to get going. And they jump right into having service instead of this time of sharing, this time in which they're a part of the body. And so you've got guys who showed up early and they brought all the good stuff, the rich food, the, the you know, meats and potatoes and, and even wine and great delicacies. And they enjoyed those to the point that they might have gotten a little bit tipsy because they had too much. And then you got the, the group that came partway through and they, they had some, but not... And then you have those who barely were able to make it at all. And they brought nothing. And all the good stuff's gone. And they're hungry. Is that a fellowship dinner? Is that the body coming together? No. And so Paul says, What? Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If that's all you're doing, if you're showing up just to eat, don't even come. That, that's what he's saying. Now, as we go through this, bear in mind, he's not saying don't show up. He's saying show up and do it right. But if that's the only reason that you're coming, why do you even show up? If you're just there for the food, you're missing the point. And so <clears throat> when you come together, you say that it's this love feast, but you're not showing any love. 
You say that it's the Lord's Supper, but you're not observing the Lord's Supper. So if, if you're just coming for the food, don't even show up. That doesn't make sense. Because it was causing these factions, these, these wealthy ones who were eating and drinking and being drunk, and, and others who were poor and didn't have anything and were going hungry. That's not showing love. That's not showing unity and fellowship in the body. They barely might have rushed in and not even been able to eat before the service. And so they're going hungry. This is not good. This is not how it's supposed to be. And we get down to verse 22. And, and in my version, in the Isaac words, if you're just showing up for the food, stay at home and eat there. Quit play acting. Quit acting like you're going to church for the unity of the church. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. He then pushes it a, a little bit more at the end of verse 22 and, and shifts from this idea of just play acting, just acting like it. You're, you say that you're doing the Lord's Supper, but really you're not. To, or do you despise the church? Do you despise that the idea is think against or regard with contempt? Maybe. Maybe it's not out of ignorance. Maybe it's not out of play acting. Maybe it's out of you have a disregard and a disrespect, a contempt for the church of God. Those who were showing up early with all of the great bounteous things, do you think they might have looked down on the slaves who had nothing? They said, well, I've got everything and I'm, I'm rich and well-to-do and wealthy and have, you know, it's all good. And those scum over there, they don't. Paul's asking them pretty point blank. Is that your attitude? That you despise the church of God? If, if so, the next line, and shame those who have nothing? They're, they're looking at these, these fellow believers, these brothers in Christ, and they're saying, you're, you're worthless. You don't matter. Is, is that Christ's attitude? Should that ever be our attitude? No way! And yet, that's what's going on. Paul asks the very simple question, what, what should I say? Should I praise that? No! In this, I will not praise you. Now, we already looked at in verses 17 and back in verse 2, there are things that he does praise, even though they don't get it quite right. There are things that he's like, hey, you're doing well on this, but, but not quite here. So let's correct it. But right here, he's like, guys, you are wrong. And this needs fixed. So what's he going to do? Well, he's about to give an example. And he's going to explain to them, okay, you say that you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, but you're not really. So let's understand what is it really? What are you really supposed to be doing? Now, you're, you're saying that you're having the Lord's Supper, but that's not what's happening. That's one of the traditions that he had told them about. And now he's going to correct their understanding and give them the example that Christ gave of what it was. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. I, th I think that phrase is really neat because he's saying, I didn't change anything, I didn't add to it, I didn't take away from it. What God gave me, I'm giving you. This is what the Lord did. In the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. That verse is probably very, very familiar to you. If you've observed the Lord's Supper much, that's one of the main ones that people point to because it expresses. But this is one of those key things about studying Scripture. If you understand the context, we recognize they were coming together and they were having this big feast. And then probably at the end of it, they would take a little bit of bread and they would go through the motions and act like they were observing the Lord's Supper. And yet, this is the focus. This is what they needed to be reminded of. This is what was really happening. Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, again, I think that there's a little bit of a historical concept that we need to understand with this. When did he do that? What was going on when he, when he initiated this? Does anybody remember? Okay, it's the Last Supper, which is during Passover. All right. So, I mentioned that that this is recorded in all of the Gospels. If you're taking notes, I'll go ahead and read those off to you real quick. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, it's verses 17 through 30. It's also recorded in Mark chapter 14. So, Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Mark 14, it starts at about verse 12. And continues through 31. In Luke, you'll find it in chapter 22. Basically, it's the entire chapter. It starts off in verse 1 and through about 39. And then John. John is actually going to spend several chapters dealing with it, but primarily it's chapter 13. And each of these is a little bit different, and there's there's a lot of different things going on. Um, as often happens in the Gospels, there are details recorded in one that aren't recorded in another, and so the flow of the evening is, is very interesting. Um, it takes a little bit of time to flesh out all of the, the details on that, and I'm working on an article with that because I think it's really interesting, but just bear in mind that there are different um, details in some of the Gospels that aren't in others, and so as you try to line those up, be aware of that. Um, John goes into great extent about what he says uh, during that time frame. Luke is going to go into some details that aren't recorded in Matthew and Mark. And that's, that's okay. That's the way that the synoptics work. They're trying to give us a picture of who Christ is from different perspectives so that we understand more and more about him. Well, all of the details about what happened are recorded there. And Paul is going to give us some of those but we realize that this occurred during Passover. That's the context in which Jesus takes this bread. And so Passover, you'll recall, was a, a normal observation of the Jews. It was a tradition that they did every year. It was commanded by God. It started off back in Exodus. God led them out of the, the slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And during that time, he even said, this is going to be the start of the year for you. This is the key focus of your year of worshiping me. You need to pay attention to this and celebrate it every year. It starts off in Exodus, but over time, the process changed. The way that they would observe some of the traditions, some of the things that they did would change. And we, if you go through the Old Testament, you're going to see different points at which things are different. When they first come out of Egypt, it only mentions the Passover lamb and eating it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And that, that's all that's there. By the time you get to the, the temple being built, some of those things change. The temple gets destroyed. 
What are they going to do now? The temple gets rebuilt. They implement it again, and there, there's modifications that take place. And then, of course, as you recall, Jesus deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees a lot, and they had all kinds of traditions that they added in. Jesus doesn't look at those and say, nope, nope, get rid of all of that, and we're going back to just how they did it in Exodus. Jesus participates in those traditions. And so as you read through those Gospels, you're going to see certain elements of the observation of Passover come up. When they talk about uh, dipping their hand into the bowl, that idea is that they had a ceremonial washing that took place during the observation of Passover. And it was a tradition. It was a way that things were done. And Jesus did that. And then he points to that and says, hey, the one that dips their hand in the, in the bowl with me, he's going to betray me. Whew. Wow. There's also, in Luke, it records that Jesus takes a cup and says, I, I have longed to participate with you in this, but I'm not going to observe it again until after I've suffered. In fact, until the kingdom of God has come. And so he takes this cup. Well, that's part of the tradition. Today, if you look at, it's called the Seder, or the order of service, basically. If you look at that, there are actually four cups that they use today. One at the beginning, and it's the blessing that starts everything off. And then later, they have a second one where they tell about the coming out of Egypt. And most likely, that was part of what Jesus did, was a process in which they remembered, because that's why they observed Passover, to remember what God had done. And the Passover lamb, they killed a lamb and painted the, the doorposts with the blood because that was a signal that they were part of the people of God and the death angel passed over. You, you remember the plagues of Egypt, right? That, that's what the Passover was, that God used that to designate, this is how I am saving you and bringing you out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so Jesus would have observed that in the, the traditional way that they were used to and gone through several of those motions. But then we get to the conclusion of supper. So the, the Seder or the order of service, the way that they would do it, they would start off and there was a cup of blessing and then a cup of remembrance in which they talk about what's going on and then a meal, a full-blown meal. Now, in, in our minds, modern-day minds, I would say, think of Thanksgiving, this isn't just a small meal. This is a big meal. And there's all kinds of elements to it and lots of food. And it was a, it was a celebration of what God had done. And so they, they observed this. Now, at the end of that, when it was finished, when the meal was done, Jesus takes some of the bread, that bread that they had used to remember and to celebrate what God had done in the lives of the people of Israel, drawing them out of slavery, saving them from Egypt, he takes some of that bread. Now, you'll recall that's unleavened bread. It's a, a particular kind of bread that doesn't have yeast or a leavening agent in it. Why not? Because in the Old Testament, God uses yeast as an example of sin. And so he's saying, hey, you need to be rid of sin. God doesn't have sin. So you're going to use unleavened bread to remind you of the holiness of God and what he has done. All of these things are going on in the minds of these Jews as they observe the Lord's Supper. And we get done with the meal, and Jesus takes some of that same bread, and he goes off script. He changes the tradition. He doesn't continue with what they were used to, what they were expecting. 
Now, I, I don't know for sure, but I know for myself, when I am constantly doing something, I get into rote memory of it, and it becomes a normal thing. And you observe the tradition because that's just what you do, and you sometimes forget what those are supposed to remind you of. There's, there's nothing wrong with tradition. There are a lot of churches and church traditions that are instituted to remind us of things, and then over time we forget them. I don't know whether that was the case for the disciples or not, but at this point, I'm guessing that their ears perked up because Jesus is not doing what was always done. He does something different, and that's where we're at in the process when Paul says this. He is, at, at the end of the meal, Jesus is going to take some of that unleavened bread that he had used to remember God saving the people out of Egypt, and he's going to give it a new meaning. Rather than reminding them of God saving them by way of the death of the Passover lamb, he is about to use this to say, hey, this is a reminder of God saving you through the death of Jesus, the perfect lamb. So he's drawing this connection for them to be aware of. And as Jews, that's a big, big thing that they would re realize and remember. We've somewhat forgotten sometimes everything that God has done through the Old Testament. And, and yes, the focus of this is definitely in remembrance of Christ. But we also ought to be remembering that God has done this consistently throughout history, taking care of his people, drawing them out, saving them, because he is a merciful God, he is a loving God, he is long-suffering, he is gracious. And so they take this unleavened bread that used to remind them of one thing and says, hey, this is to remind you of something else. This is now to remind you of the body of Christ, that it's about to be broken for you. And that's, that's exactly what Paul is reminding them of it. He, it says in verse 24, after he'd given thanks, he broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After that, then, Jesus is going to pick up a, a cup. It's another of the cups, and, and modern day, they use four cups. I don't know for sure what Jesus would have used in that time frame. It was part of when, you know, some of those traditions were being made, and was there four, were there three? I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The Gospels don't record that for us. It doesn't matter. We know that there was one at the beginning and that there was one after supper. And that's what matters. Jesus takes that one after supper and he again says, this is going to represent something new. In the Jewish traditional method of observing that cup meant something. Modern day, it's, it's a remembrance and a celebration together. But in, in their mind, it meant something. And Jesus is saying, all right, this cup, it's going to mean something different now. It's going to represent the new covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Who, who remembers what? Do what? Covenant. Covenant, sorry, yeah. Someone said an agreement? Yeah, a contract, an agreement. It was, it, there's a lot of, of concept of the covenants in the Old Testament. That it often involved the death of an animal, a cutting of the animal, to signify we are making a contract. And in this contract, it is so serious that if you break it or I break it, if the parties of it break it, they need to be cut in half, just like this animal that was sacrificed to establish it. And Jesus is saying, hey, I am establishing a new covenant with you. 
Jesus is going to be beaten and killed on the cross, crucified, shed his blood, and he's saying, this blood, this, this cup represents my blood that is forming this new covenant. A covenant where there's not a second party. God is making this promise to them, and he is paying the price, and he is making it happen. Also, with that phrase, new covenant, we don't, we don't necessarily always think the way that they did. When he mentions new covenant, they probably remembered, oh yeah, Ezekiel talks about that. Jeremiah talks about that. Old Testament prophecy talks about a coming new covenant. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm fulfillment of that Old Testament. I am the Messiah. And he's reminding them in, uh, let's see, the term new covenant had a lot of meaning to the Jewish men gathered around the table. It was promised all the way back in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel, and it pointed both to the Messiah and the end times. And there's a lot of end time stuff that's involved in new covenant. I'm not, I'm not going to get into all of that this morning, but he is saying all of that stuff from the Old Testament that God promised, I am establishing that. I am the new covenant. I am the sacrificial lamb that establishes this. And when you take this cup, you are reminding yourselves of that promise that God made all the way back there, that he's going to fulfill all the way up there. And in between, you are reminding yourselves through this, because it is my shed blood that is establishing this covenant. And so Jesus, during Passover, takes these two elements out of the whole of the tradition of observing Passover that they had, and he gives them new meaning. And he says, this, this bread that you used to take to remember about the Passover, you're now going to remember my body is broken for you. And this drink, this cup, this grape juice or wine, whatever, was used that when you drink that, it is now representing the new covenant. Not the old promises that I made to Moses, but the new promises that I made in, throughout the Old Testament, the promises of what's going to come. It's representing that because Christ is establishing that new covenant. Coming back to, to 1 Corinthians, that, that was what he was doing. And, and he commanded the disciples, do these things in remembrance of me. Do, do these things. Well, what things? That's one of those where there's, there has been some argument. Are we supposed to observe the entire Passover now in recognition of Christ? I think to the Jews, as they were remembering Passover, that yeah, that was now meaning Christ, not meaning the Old Testament Passover that Moses had. But that doesn't mean that he's establishing for us today to have the entire Passover. He's establishing the Lord's Supper, that portion of it, that then says, all right, we are remembering him. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul picks it up in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's just given the example of what Jesus did. And, and they were well aware of this, that he had taken the bread in the night in which he was betrayed. He took the bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And that closes out the quote that he's saying of, this is what Jesus said. This is what he did. Those two elements are in remembrance of what Christ has done. 
And Christ did a ton of things. He established the new covenant. He paid for our sins. He offers us justification. He is the propitiation for our sins. He deals with, I mean, all kinds of stuff. And with these two elements, you are to be reminded of him. Paul then takes it up in verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So they were saying, we're observing the Lord's Supper. Paul says, no, you're not observing the Lord's Supper. When you observe the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You are fulfilling what he had told his disciples, his followers to do. Do this in remembrance of me. When they were coming together, they weren't remembering him. They weren't doing any of that. They weren't paying attention to the body and blood of Christ. They were off doing their own thing, thinking about their own food, getting drunk and having a party and not even beginning to remember who Christ was. And that was the problem. They weren't proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I mentioned that we sing songs together. And in Colossians, it talks about how you do that to admonish one another in psalms and in hymns and spiritual songs. Another way that we encourage one another, that we help one another, is by proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes together. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. <laughs> this is one of those verses that gets a lot of confusion and a lot of questions. And What is an unworthy manner? Who, who among us is worthy of what Christ has, Christ has done? None of us are worthy. We don't deserve his blessings or his... So that, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, oh, well, you earned it. You are, you are worthy of the attention of Christ. He's, he's recognizing the way in which this is done. And that, that idea of worthy is an unworthy manner. Not that you personally have earned it or are worthy. We all are unworthy of the grace of God. The phrase deals with the idea of it being fitting or appropriate in the right way of doing these things. It's the method and the purpose that you have in observing it that matters. These people were being flippant about it. They were shaming one another as they went through this. It was not in a way that was fitting to what God wanted. He brought his disciples together to observe Passover and the Lord's Supper to point back to what God had done and help them recognize what God is going to do and realize that Christ is the one doing this. And this church at Corinth, they were just taking it as part of a regular party and, and some were getting drunk and some were going hungry and they weren't doing anything about proclaiming the Lord's death. They weren't focused on him at all. They were shaming one another. They were despising the church of God back in verse 22. They were doing it in an unworthy way. Those are the ones who will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. They were being flippant, but instead they need to take these things, recognizing why Jesus instituted it and do it in unity with fellow believers. That's where he goes on to in verse 28. A man must examine himself, evaluate it, look at it, consider it, test it is one of the translations. Think about yourself. Now, this isn't dealing with, uh, I've sometimes been asked the question, well, if I'm, if I'm living in sin, does that mean that I don't get to take the Lord's Supper? That's the wrong question to be asking. 
from the get-go. If you're living in sin, you need to deal with sin. Take the Lord's Supper, and that's, that's really what we're going to see over and over and over again. He never says, don't eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying, do it right. Do these things. Eat, but do it the right way. Evaluate yourself. Make sure that you are observing this correctly, and in so doing, he is to eat. That's verse 28. That, that's a command. Do it. You're to eat, but you're to eat in the right way. You're, you are to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks the, uh, for he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Yes, sir. That's part of it, but the the point that Paul is making is that we are to be doing this in a worthy manner not in a flippant way. And so we're to stop and think about, why am I doing this? What, what am I doing with this? Am I doing this because it's the tradition? It's the way that we've always done this? Am I even thinking about it at all? Or do I just show up and go through the motions and move on? Or do I pause and think about, what am I remembering? I'm remembering who Christ is. I'm remembering his death, his burial, and his bodily resurrection. Yeah, I need to evaluate myself Am I in sin? Am I doing things wrong? Am I doing... But that's not, that's not the whole of the focus here. The, the focus is examine the entirety of it, not just that one little uh, portion of, am I, do I have a personal sin? That's part of, but not all of. Does that make sense? Does that answer your... Okay. The, the manner and the, the way in which it was being done, is it flippant or is it with that evaluation? The evaluation of, am I where I ought to be? Am I doing this, the reasons that God wants me to do this? Am I doing it in fellowship with the body of Christ? Or am I despising some of the body, rejecting them, shaming them? All of that is to be examined, is to be judged. And he, he goes on to then say, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, it, it was pointed out that there are several different words in this about judgment. Um, and and there's, a, there's a bunch of different things going on there, and I'm trying to find my note on it. Uh, notice, notice here that the individual sin isn't really in view. Um, it's why he had in, uh, instituted it and how the church at Corinth was not in unity, but instead was fractured apart, harming one another. Instead, we're supposed to evaluate rightly so that we are not judged. This, this English word, judged, has several different meanings and ideas to it. Uh, two weeks ago, I used the example of church. I'm going to church, I'm going to the church to have church with the church, right? We use that word church to mean different things. The building, the activity, and the people. This idea of judged also is the same. Uh, in this, it's... You judge, so you won't be judged. So when you're judged, you won't face judgment. I, I know that's kind of odd, but that's, that's really what's happening with the word, the English word judge there. So pay attention and be, be aware of that. We're, we're going to kind of break it apart. Um, this is the Isaac version, and then, then we're going to get into it. If we correctly evaluate ourselves and our observation of it, we won't need an outside judge to rule 
uh, the decision on us. That outside judge will simply instruct us rather than punish us. So that's what's, what's happening in this. Um, the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not evaluate this correctly. For this reason, many among you were, are sick and a number sleep. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. But verse 31, if we evaluated, judged ourselves rightly or correctly, we would not have that outside judge make a ruling on us. But when we have a ruling against us or that, that outsider looks at us, evaluates us, and judges, we are to be disciplined, that's instructed, rather than to be condemned. That's what's, what's happening through that. Did that make sense or did I get you all good and confused? I saw a hand. Go ahead. The, the idea of, of judging, yes, it gets a little bit challenging. And there's, there is a concept or an idea that, oh, well, don't judge me. You, you don't get to judge me. We as the body are to judge ourselves. This, this is a, a unity thing. This is the body of Christ. The church is to evaluate and judge and judge rightly so that they can be instructed, disciplined, rather than condemned punished. And so, are we to judge? There's, there's a lot of verses that are starting to pop to my head on that one. A lot of differences of, of how that works. Are we encouraging and helping people to become more like Christ, or are we condemning them? Becomes the big difference there. If all you're doing is pointing out, oh, you messed up, and you messed up, and you messed up, and you messed up, and you messed up, that's not what we're called to do. But, yeah, the, the idea is that we evaluate ourselves. We, um, the, the, take the plank out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in your brother's eye is part of that. That we evaluate self first. Am I where I need to be? Am I doing what I am supposed to be doing? Evaluate that and then come alongside the brother. Hey, I had to deal with this. Maybe I can help you deal with it as well. That's definitely a good point and, and part of what's going on. Um, that's not quite the focus that's, that's happening there with, with everything as much as evaluating what's going on with this. But good question and a good part of it is how do we interact with fellow believers and not condemn them, but instead evaluate with them how they can become more like Christ? And I, I think that's, I use the example of judge, don't, don't judge so you won't be judged to judge and judgments and all of that. Or I'm going to the church to have church with the church. English has some of those words that just get misused and misunderstood. And so let's, let's step back and, uh, and recognize, okay, when it says judge, don't judge lest you be judged. The idea is you're not to condemn somebody so that you are not condemned because the, the method of evaluation that you use is the same one that's going to be used on you. So if you say, well, I know that this is how things have to be, and I'm going to declare that that's how it is, you're using the wrong standard. We evaluate 
we examine, we look at based on what the Bible says. And using that standard, that's the standard that we're going to be evaluated on. So we need to evaluate others and ourselves using that standard and help them, not with the goal of beating them down and telling them how terrible they are, but of helping them align with, hey, this is what God wants. How do we do that? How do we, that's that unity idea, become who God wants us to be? That's what we need to be judging and evaluating. Not, I'm going to condemn you because you got it wrong, but we need to make sure that we align with Scripture. Does that answer the question and, and make sense? I don't, want, I don't want to lose people as I go on the rabbit trail. Okay, so what Paul is talking about here specifically is we need to evaluate when we take the Lord's Supper, are we doing it for the betterment of the church or are we doing it flippantly? Are we doing it to encourage one another or to tear one another down? Are we doing it to remember who Christ is and what he has done? And that's that point in which we, we do evaluate, am I living in sin? Not to say, well, I'm not going to take it because I'm living in sin, but to say, all right, I need to deal with that. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin so that I no longer live in sin. I'm no longer bound by sin. I'm not a, a slave to sin anymore. I'm free to Christ. And so in that way, yes, we do evaluate ourselves and our sin, but that's oftentimes in normal modern Christian realms, the whole thing is, oh, don't take it if you're living in sin. No, don't live in sin and take it. That's the, that's the point. And we need to pause and evaluate, judge ourselves and judge ourselves rightly, evaluate ourselves rightly so that we're not condemned with the world, but instead instructed and developed and made right. That idea of discipline, um, is, it, that's a word that comes up in Scripture quite a bit as well. And I, I think it's an important word to realize discipline is not spanking. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is instruction and development. And it's all of that. And it includes whatever corporal punishment is necessary. It also includes the positive reinforcement. It includes all of that. Yes, sir. The, the whole point is that we need to recognize this is representing the body and blood of Christ. We need to trust him. We are proclaiming what he has done. So nowhere through this does, does Paul say, don't take it. He says, trust Christ. He says, believe in him. He says, declare who he is. He says, get rid of sin and live for, for him and observe this and do this. And so... Yes, it, it is designed for those who are followers of Christ. It is intended for believers to remember what Christ has done for them. But his, his focus is, hey, declare Christ and take this together as the body of Christ. As fellow believers, this is for you together in unity to remember who Christ is. And if you evaluate that correctly, you don't stand condemned. You stand in a recognition of who Christ is, doing what he wants. So then, my brethren, verse 33, when you come together to eat, again, this is expecting you to do that. Follow through on that. Don't not do it because, well, I'm not worthy. I don't have it right. I'm, I, no, fix those things and come together and eat. But when you do that, and I think this is a, a key word in the entire passage, big deal. 
And, and I love how with this, Paul kind of does what I, what I often try to do at the end of a sermon. So what? We've just talked about all this stuff. So what? What do we do with that? So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. That idea of, of waiting, if, if you look it up in vines, it presents the picture of look to receive someone. Reach out in readiness to receive them. The, the word itself, the idea is to pause, look for, and accept. So when you come together, are you looking out for your brother in Christ? Are you looking out for your fellow believer? What they were doing, I know it was a while ago that we talked about this, but what the church at Corinth was doing, they were coming together and this group would eat and be full and be drunk and another group wouldn't even get to have anything. And in that way, they were fracturing the church and separating and dividing and they were not remembering why they were doing this in the first place. Paul says, when you come together, wait for each other, receive one another, so that together you're doing this the right way for the right reasons. You're doing this as a remembrance of who Christ is. If someone is hungry, if they're, if they're showing up just for the food, eat at home, so that when you come together, you will not come together for judgment. Now, Paul did have some other things that he wanted to address with them. And he says, I'll, I'll take care of that when I get there. But this is the key. This is the focus that he had in this aspect of their getting together. Now, I started off with lots and lots of questions about these things. I think when we get to the end, we, we find the conclusion that we are to get rid of the, the factions and the divisions and all of this separation. Uh, he'd already dealt with some of that back in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. He, he dealt with this idea of uh, there were some who said, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I, I follow Christ. I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by... Get rid of all of that stuff. When you come together, it is to be together. And so in observing this, we are recognizing who Christ is and what he has done for all of this. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. There shouldn't be division amongst believers. Now, if you're like me, you look around and you're like, well, but what about, why, why are there all of these different churches and all of these different things? That's a good question. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on with all of that. Paul's focus in talking to the church at Corinth when they came together, they were ignoring and rejecting and shaming members of that assembly. And they were failing to do what God had intended for them to do. If you're just here for the food, you're here for the wrong reason. Just stay home. But the goal is to come together to be the body of Christ. So what? In, in, in a real close view, when we observe the Lord's Supper, it is a time of unity within the church when we recognize and remember together what Jesus did. It's a look back to the cross. It's a look forward to the promises that he has given us. It's a, a look inside. Are we the church that God wants us to be? If not, we need to fix that. That's where we evaluate. And 
Sometimes that evaluation's a little uncomfortable. But we need to fix it, not ignore it. To look forward to the consummation of his ultimate plans. Further out, just like with singing that I mentioned earlier, we need to go to the scripture for the specifics. So I listed off a bunch of questions that come up. Why do we use grape juice? Why do we use rice crackers? Why do we use little cups? Why do we do it every month? Why do we, all of those things. As we've gone through this, I'm, I'm guessing several of those have been answered just by what's listed. Some of those, I hope that you realize it doesn't matter. Jesus didn't make a big point out of addressing that, so why would I make a big point out of arguing over those things? The point, the purpose, the reason that we do these things is what Paul points out. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Our goal is to remember Christ, to remember what he has done for us, in us, through us, as the church. We celebrate this. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to give you a little bit of time to evaluate, to think through. When I take the Lord's Supper, am I doing it just because it's the tradition, that's how we've always done it? Well, we're not going to do it the way that we've always done it, because since COVID, what we've done is set up the tables and have people come up and get for themselves. I'm, I've got several men that are going to come up and help pass these out. And it's still in the, the little cup with the... the bread underneath and the juice on top. Take both of those, hang on to those, and together, at the same time, we are going to observe this. Like I said, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to evaluate. Am I doing this the way that God wants me to? Or am I doing it because it's just what we always do? We've, there, there's always challenges and issues and problems and sin and things that need to be dealt with. Deal with those. If, if something comes to mind, obviously, remember that, realize it, address that, fix that. It's not then that you don't observe. It's that you use this as an opportunity to say, hey, I got to get these things right. God, help me get these things right. Help me fix it. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminders that you give us. Lord, it's so easy to do things as tradition because that's how we've always done it. Help us not to do that, but to go back to your word and be reminded that we do this in remembrance of you. And when we remember what Christ did for us, that he suffered and died, and even before that, that he left heaven and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even a death on the cross. But Lord, we also remember he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and the grave. Lord, may this be a time of remembrance, of recognition. May it be a time in which together 
we celebrate who you are and what you've done. Lord, we're not perfect. We've not got it all straightened out and fixed yet. So Lord, help us to evaluate accurately, to identify those things that we don't get right, to fix them, so that together we celebrate what you have done in our lives, in us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.